Thank you, Luke and Anna, and thank you, Tom and choir, for that great anthem. And I mean that because today's, yeah. <clears throat> today's message is not a feel-good message. And uh, I was kind of afraid, man, I'm going to be sending everybody out of here just down in the dumps. But you reminded us we have reason to rejoice and have joy. So thank you for that. Well, good morning, church. I want to begin today by asking you this question. What is your favorite genre of movies? Is it drama, action, westerns, comedies, love stories, musicals, documentaries? I like all of those, but there is one genre of movies that I do have to be careful about, and that's those tense drama films. Ever since those hunters shot Bambi's mom, <laughs> and the Wicked Witch of the West sent out those flying monkeys, I just cannot watch some high drama films. You know, when The Fugitive, the one that they made that starred Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones came out about 20 years ago, Gail and I went to that movie and my legs shook through the entire movie. Even when I watch it today, yes, I'm a glutton for punishment, my legs shake. Well, today's passage from Revelation chapter 8 is kind of like a preview of a combination of a drama film, action film, and a love story. Now you might go, okay, drama I get, action I get, but love story? Really? Well, stick with me. Hang in there, okay? First, if you are visiting with us today, or if you've missed the past few weeks, I'm going to do a quick review to bring you up to date and set the stage. Back in chapter 5 of Revelation, the Apostle John had been given a vision of a scroll with seven seals in the hand of God, but no one is found worthy to open the scroll and reveal its contents until one who is called the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and a lamb that was slain, all of these being titles for the Lord Jesus Christ, he is deemed worthy to open it. And when the lamb opens the scroll, what is revealed in the first four seals are four horsemen on horses that are white, red, black, and pale, representing different apocalyptic events. The fifth seal revealed the souls of many people who had been martyred for their faith. <clears throat> and the sixth seal revealed all the people of the earth trying to hide from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. But then John sees four angels holding back the winds at the four corners of the earth and a great multitude of people from that are dressed in white, and they are from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And then the Lamb opens the seventh seal, and there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. And John sees seven angels with seven trumpets, 
And another angel comes with a golden censer and with incense, and he fills it with fire from the altar that is before the throne of God and hurls it to the earth. And that's where we pick up the story today with the seven angels and seven trumpets. We're going to deal with the first four trumpets today. Now, I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I do want us to read together aloud the verses from the text today. And we're going to begin with verse 6. So will you please read this with me aloud? Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. Now, trumpets in Scripture are used for different purposes. They're used to call people to a holy assembly. They're used to announce a new king. They're used to declare a feast. But mostly, trumpets are used to warn people. Take a look at this scripture from Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. The phrase day of the Lord is used by the prophets and writers of scriptures to refer to a time of judgment, a time of reckoning, and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at this passage from Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood." Brothers and sisters, we are the watchmen. As uncomfortable as it may be to warn people that you see are on a path of destruction, it's actually a loving thing for us to speak out and to warn them, not in arrogance or self-righteousness, but with humility. The seven trumpets are instruments of warning, warnings about the terrible reality of God's coming judgment on sin and evil in the world. Now read with me what the scripture says that the first angel and trumpet announced. Let's read together. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up.
If you have read the Old Testament book of Exodus regarding the plagues that God sent on Egypt in order to get Pharaoh to release the Israelites from their slavery, you know that the first part of verse 7 that we just read comes or echoes rather Exodus chapter 9 verses 23 and 24. Now John's Jewish readers of Revelation would have immediately recognized the parallel. But it would not have been lost on John's Gentile readers either because dangerous hail mixed with other things was recognized by the ancient people of the Mediterranean as a sign of divine judgment. With the destruction of so many trees, you can imagine that this will result in a reduction of the supply of fruit and nuts, causing the price of these items to rise dramatically and severely affecting even the level of carbon dioxide in the air. With the destruction of all the grass, this will eventually lead to the death of many livestock, eliminating or at least severely restricting the supply of meat and dairy products, again, creating economic crisis. Now let's read together regarding the second trumpet. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, this warning with a third of the sea turning to blood mirrors the first judgment in ancient Egypt when Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, you can read about how Moses struck the waters of the Nile River with his staff and the river turned to blood. Egypt must have been economically devastated by this flood because they depended upon the Nile River for their livelihood, for their supply of drinking water, for irrigation, for their supply of fish. The same thing happening in the seas of the earth in the future will affect the whole world economically and in matters of health. And regarding a huge mountain all afire falling into the sea. If this is the earth being struck by a large meteor, certainly it will have a huge impact upon the shipping and fishing industries. What about the third trumpet? Read with me again. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. 
wormwood is referred to in several places in the Bible. It's actually a plant known to botanists as Artemisia, I knew I would do this, forgive me you botanists out there, as Artemisia absinthium, the oil of which is very bitter or even poisonous. Usually in scripture, wormwood is used as a metaphor for sin. In the exodus from Egypt, the Israelites came to a place called Mara after they passed through the Red Sea, only to find the waters at Mara were bitter and undrinkable, thus its name. However, there the Lord purified the water so that the Israelites could drink. Here in this passage in Revelation, sweet waters over much of the earth become bitter and undrinkable. Now read with me the fourth trumpet. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. brass fanfare. Thank you. Robert wrote those fanfares specifically for this message. Pastor Stan discussed this idea with him a few weeks ago, and Robert went to work preparing, writing, creating these fanfares. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, the darkness surely reminds us of the next to the last plague that came upon the Egyptians prior to the exodus of the Israelites. At that time, total darkness came upon the land except for upon the Israelites. Whether the darkness referred to here in this passage in Revelation is literal or symbolic, certainly spiritual darkness that is pervasive in this world is but a forerunner of this additional darkness that God will send as a form of judgment. So what are we to think about all of this? How do we interpret it? What application can we make from it? These judgments are an initial response to the cry of the martyrs whose lament was recorded in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? 
Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. My wife received in the mail this week a book that she purchased from The Voice of the Martyrs. It has stories of Christian martyrs in history, even recent history, who died because they were witnesses for Jesus Christ. Some of them were our friends. Werner Gronwald and his two children were killed in Afghanistan on November 29, 2014, for their Christian witness. Can we, like them, purpose that Christ is worth dying for? Trouble is increasing in this world. And you may never be killed for your faith, but will you teach your children and your grandchildren that suffering may come, that sacrifices may well be required of them, and that Christ is worth whatever price they will have to pay? And will you live that out before them yourselves? In this section on trumpets, we see that God is not ignoring the lament of his martyrs. He is not refraining from judging those who took their lives. Rather, judgment is being worked out on the stage of human history. And the timing of his judging is somehow tied to the number of people who are martyred for their Christian faith. Dr. Craig Keener says, For suffering persecuted people, judgment on the world that oppresses them is a sign of hope. It is a signal that God will not wait only until the second coming of Christ to begin vindicating them. God will consummate history on the day of the Lord, but he is the Lord of history even now. What about the present invasion of Ukraine by Russia? Is it part of the wars Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 that would be a sign of the end of the age? Well, it's not a war specifically against Christians, but the atrocities we have seen and read about in the news begs a question. How are we to pray regarding this? God has allowed Vladimir Putin to rise to power in Russia, but God will ultimately hold into account everyone who does evil. I find myself praying, Lord, remove him or bring him to salvation so that he'll have a change of heart. Lord, forgive him because he doesn't know what he's doing. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4, Paul wrote, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We should pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when his kingdom comes in its fullness, he will judge all sin and evil and wickedness. He will unleash his wrath on everything and everyone that is evil. Now, some people struggle with the thought of God being a God of wrath. 
Perhaps you've heard it said or have even said yourself, I know I used to say it at one time, that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and that Jesus reveals God in the New Testament to be a God of love. But my friends, I want to show you from the wider context of Scripture that God is a God of both love and judgment presented this way throughout the Bible. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Eugene Peterson, the great 20th and 21st century Presbyterian pastor who wrote the modern paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, said that Revelation actually doesn't tell us anything new. We've already seen and read and heard elsewhere in the Bible everything presented in Revelation. Revelation just tells it in a new way. So, in order to help us see that love and judgment coexist, let's take a look at a few verses. Jesus said that his purpose in coming was to seek and to save the lost, but he also said, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Considering my own rebellion against God, I deserve judgment. But he was rich in mercy, and he forgave me. And he'll do the same for you if you surrender your will to him. This is a description of who I am and probably who you were, too, that Paul wrote in Titus chapter 3. At one time, we, too, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. So does that mean that everyone will receive God's mercy? You know, Paul, who was previously Saul and severely persecuted Christians, after he came to faith in Christ, wrote this to Thessalonian Christians who were suffering persecution at the hands of others. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. You know, Paul wrote a long section in the second half of the first chapter of Romans about the wrath of God. He said, it is coming against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
And if you haven't read it lately, I, I was going to include it today, but because of time, because it's it's not terribly long, but it's 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 long enough. But I encourage you, go home and read that first chapter of the book of Romans. I think it's important for me to say a word about the nature of God's wrath. God's wrath is not capricious. He does not maliciously, vindictively, spitefully, or uncontrollably fly into a fit of rage like men do. God's wrath is his settled opposition to all that is evil. It is a natural, holy response by a holy, righteous God against that which is totally foreign to his nature, which is sin. This is good news. This is love. What? You say? How is that good news? How is that love? Daryl Johnson, in his excellent commentary on Revelation, said, Judgment says God cares. Judgment says we and our choices matter to God. Judgment says God takes evil and sin seriously. Judgment says God is not indifferent to nor tolerant of evil and sin. Judgment says that God moves against evil and sin. You know, God forbid that one of your family members would ever be murdered. But if it happened, you would want justice, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want a God or a judge who just winks at it and says, ah, it's okay, go on your way. God cares about the evil that is in this world, and because he cares, one day he will bring justice to all men. But does God delight in taking out his wrath on sinners? Let's read again what we read earlier in our call to worship from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 23. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? You know, it's important that we note that the judgment revealed by these four angels and their trumpets is not total. This is not total judgment. This is God giving mankind a warning shot, a confirmation that something is wrong, that people need to turn to him now. The events described in verses 7 through 12 are not total. Thirteen times we hear a fraction repeated, a third, a third, a third. Daryl Johnson again says that one-third is not to be taken literally. He says it is not a statistic, but a symbol. What kind of symbol? A symbol that communicates that the judgment events listed are very severe, but they are actually also a mercy from God. 
They are not yet total destruction, but they are a warning telling the world to repent because the time is coming when it will be too late. Read with me the final verse in our text today. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. We referred earlier to Revelation 16 and the lament of the martyrs asking God, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? Does this mean all the inhabitants of the earth? No. The inhabitants of the earth is a technical phrase referring to those who are in rebellion against God and his ways. It refers to those who buy into the present world order of power and violence, to those who trust in earthly security, who are unable to look beyond what is seen and temporal, and to those who oppose the Lamb and violate God's will. You see, tragically, and this should break our hearts, We cannot be indifferent to this. Tragically, not everyone will repent. So, like a movie preview that leaves you wondering what will happen, I'm going to leave you here. Part two of this story of judgment will be revealed to us by Matt Jaderston next week.